Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Mark 14. Mark chapter 14, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. As you're turning there, if you can't find it there, uh, in the Pew Bible here, it's on page 719. Page 719, we're going to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 14, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 out of the Christian Standard Bible, which will not be too different from your own. Hear then the word of the Lord. After After two days, it was the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a treacherous way to arrest and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, or there, there may be rioting among the people. While he was in Bethany at the house of Simon, while Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon, who had a serious skin disease, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of pure and expensive fragrant oil of nard. She broke the jar and poured it on his head. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this fragrant oil been wasted? For this oil, for this oil might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. Then Jesus said, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you and you could do what is good for them whenever you want but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. I assure you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to hand him over to them. And when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him silver. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Our Father, we thank you that you've given us um, by Mark through your Holy Spirit this word. We thank you for the freedom we have here in this country to read your Bible aloud and study it and proclaim it to both Christian and non-Christian. It is a privilege that we don't deserve and we thank you for it. We pray now, Father, that you would help us to be humble and contrite and trembling at your word. Lord, we we study your word week to week. We read it throughout the week in our homes. And it becomes so familiar to us, which in one sense it's great because it's accessible. Yet in another sense, it's dangerous because we can be so familiar that we fail to tremble. And so, Father, we pray that as you speak... You would soften our hearts to hear. We pray that you would convict us of sin. We pray that you would transform us by the power of your Holy Spirit who lives in us. And we pray for those who don't yet know Christ, that today they would turn from their sins and trust in Jesus. All of this can only come by your power, and that's why we ask you for it now. Help us, for apart from you we are helpless indeed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Some people think that they can consider Jesus and be okay with Jesus without actually following him or actually going all out for him. Those people who reject Jesus in that way 
say um, they say they don't trust in Jesus. They admit that they don't trust in Jesus, and so it's obvious that they're against him, uh, at least in the sense that they're not following him. It's trickier, though, when we talk about people who say they like Jesus. They might not say they're Christian, but they say they like Jesus. Or even for those who say they're Christian and they say they love Jesus. They could even sing the songs, the beautiful song we just sang, My Jesus, I love thee. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. We could say we love Jesus or even say that we follow Jesus. Yet it's possible for us who sing that song or for us who say we follow Jesus, it's possible for us to be rejecting Jesus as well. We might not even know that we're actually doing it and still be doing it. Judas was, right? Judas thought he was following Jesus. And yet, at the end of the day, as you read Mark 14, verses 10 and 11, he's seeking for a chance to betray Jesus, though he professed to follow Jesus. Often, these professing Christians have a category for other Christians. They call other Christians extreme or radical. Christians who seem to devote their whole lives to Jesus. There are many Christians who look at other Christians that way. And they, in turn, seek to worship Jesus and follow Jesus in moderation. Don't go so hard. Don't be so all out for Jesus. Don't be so extreme for Jesus. Don't go crazy for Jesus. Just like Jesus. Just love him. Say you believe in him. And that's okay. That's enough. They worship Jesus in moderation. Other Christians on the other side who tend to be extreme feel like that's normal Christianity. And they're saying, this is not extreme. This is just biblical Christianity. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, thank you for coming this morning. We're we're grateful you're here and we hope that we could be of help to you in understanding who Jesus is. You need to understand as a non-Christian this morning that not everyone who says they follow Jesus actually follow Jesus. It is true that real Christians can act hypocritically. We all do. We sin. And yet... It's also true that many who say they're Christian act hypocritically because they're not really Christian. So some real Christians, everyone acts hypocritically. Real Christians do it sometimes and they sin. Other people do it not because they're real Christians who are struggling with sin, but they're actually not Christian. And what we see in this passage is that Jesus is actually polarizing. He has a polarizing effect on all he encounters. So Jesus meets somebody, he interacts with someone, and Jesus, like like a great divide, pushes you into one of two extremes, actually. Jesus pushes you and polarizes people. He causes people to divide into two different camps and opposite groups. Some are for him, and the rest are against him. Now, the peculiar aspect of this passage here in front of us is that the one who is against him here claimed to actually follow him. He actually gave up years of his life and gave up his job to follow Jesus around. Some might say he was extreme. He was radical. He was devoted. And yet, he wasn't really following Jesus. So let me summarize the story that I already read for you. The people want to kill Jesus, the chief priests, and the leaders want to kill Jesus, but they can't because he's too popular with the crowd. He had just spent time with them in the Temple Mount Monday and Tuesday, stumping their questions, and the crowd was amazed at him. And they loved him. They loved him. And yet, the chief priest wanted to kill him. But you can't kill him in front of the crowd because if you arrest him in front of the crowd, there's going to be a what? There's going to be a riot. There's going to be an uproar. And so they got to arrest him in secret, somewhere where it's private. Well, 
a few days before this, remember this is the last week of Jesus' life, he's going to die on a Friday. On the Saturday before this, before Palm Sunday, um, Jesus is in Bethany. And when you get to verses 3 to, to 9, you have this story from Saturday. Jesus is having dinner in Bethany, reclining at the table of Simon the leper's house. Now Simon, presumably here, was healed from his leprosy, and that's why you're able to have dinner at his house. And they're there eating dinner. While they're eating dinner, Mary, the sister of Martha, comes. And Mary's not mentioned here in Mark, 13, Mark 14. She's mentioned in John chapter 12, if you want to read it there. But Mary comes to Jesus with expensive oil. Uh, it says here in verse, in verse uh, 3, pure and expensive fragrant oil of nard, a jar of it. Now, this was worth 300 denarii, which is a little bit over a year's worth of salary. So in our day, it might be somewhere between fifty to $60,000 in Bellflower 2016 yearly annual salary. So fifty to $60,000 in a bottle. You got a bottle of fragrance, $60,000 worth. She takes it, pours it on his head, pours some on his feet as well, John tells us. And wipes the feet with, with, with her hair. And as she's doing this, she's anointing Jesus. The disciples get angry with her. What are you doing? $60,000 gone in a minute? You could have sold that? Imagine how much you could do for the gospel, for the kingdom. Imagine how much you could do for our ministry. If you would have just sold that, took the money and invested it and used it for our ministry. To ministry to the poor. You know how many poor people are hungry right now and starving? You know how many people we could feed with that bottle of pure, fragrant, expensive oil of nard? So they got angry and they start to criticize her. First they talk amongst each other complaining. Then they start complaining against her and scolding her. And the, 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 the language here in the original has the idea of not just one rebuke, but repeated rebukes. Almost people taking turns bashing her. Just complaining and attacking her verbally. Well, Jesus eventually stops it. He doesn't stop it right away because it says that they were doing this. It, it was a few of them getting their shots in before Jesus finally stops it. Well, Jesus stops it and then he explains to them why she did the right and noble thing. After that, Judas leaves to go to the chief priests and agrees to betray Jesus and hand him over in a secret time when the crowd is gone. Because the chief priests don't know where Jesus is staying at night. But Judas does, and he'll find a time where they could arrest Jesus in quiet. So that's the story we're going to focus on here for the next 30 minutes. Here's the main idea. If you have notes, John Lee might have passed you a handout. If you have notes, right there you see the main idea is that Jesus polarizes those who encounter him. So you need to know which group you fall into. Everyone who encounters Jesus is polarized into one of two groups. You need to figure out where your life is. Which group are you among? You are either, point number one, you either do the expensive and noble thing. If you're filling in the blank, you either do the expensive and noble thing, $60,000 worth expensive, you do the expensive and noble thing, or you betray the king and his kingdom. That's point number two. If you want to fill in the blanks, you're done with the points. You could go to sleep now if you want. Okay. Or you betray the king and his kingdom. But let's, let's look at these two one at a time now. Okay. So number one, you either do the expensive thing, expensive and noble thing. That's what she does. Mary does. Or you do what Judas does and you betray the king and his kingdom. And there is no middle ground. 
There is no inexpensive, I'm for Jesus, but I'm not going to do the expensive thing. You either do the expensive thing or not. So there are five aspects here under point one of of the expensive and sacrificial and noble things she does. Let me just go through these briefly. You don't have to remember these. Just as we look at these verses, I want you to see what her act did. Five aspects of her action. Look at verse three. It says, while he was in Bethany at the house of Simon, who had a serious skin disease, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of pure and expensive fragrant oil of nard. She broke the jar and poured it on his head. Again, I told you this is worth $60,000 in today's terms. A year and two months worth of salary today. Now, why does she do this? Is she devoted to Jesus? Does she love Jesus? Yes. And if you don't know that she does, her sacrificial giving of $60,000 proves it, right? She clearly honors Jesus and thinks he's worth it. He's worth dropping 60 grand in one minute. Just like that. So she clearly sees the worth of Jesus. We call that today worship in the sense of worship. That's where the word worship comes from, from seeing someone's worth. And according to John, I said early, earlier, she anoints his feet as well and wipes it with her hair. The fragrance fills the room. And everyone else around feels awkward and shocked. Okay, so that's the first of five aspects here, is that it was expensive. Secondly, though, This action of hers was perceptive. This expensive and noble thing she did was perceptive. Why? Look at verse 4. Some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this fragrant oil been wasted? For this oil might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they began to scold her. So she she looked at it as honoring Jesus. They looked at it as what? Waste. What a waste. So they begin to complain. And they, com- they complain not out of unrighteousness, it seems, out of a righteous cause. This money could have been give- given to who? The poor. Isn't that a good thing? It's a good thing to love the poor and give to the poor. After all, doesn't Jesus say that we should care for the poor? Didn't Jesus teach them to care for the poor? Look at Mark 10, 21. Just turn back a page or two in your Bible. Mark 10, 21 says this. Looking at the rich young ruler. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to this rich young man, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Jesus told this rich man to give to the poor everything he has. Jesus is teaching that we should care for the poor. Look at Mark 12, verse 40. Mark 12, 40. um, We talk, we hear the, we see this Jesus indicting the religious teachers And he says about the scribes who are religious hypocrites, verse 40, they devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show, but and they will receive a harsher punishment. Notice they they devour who? Widows' houses. They 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 pray upon who? The widows, the poor, right? They pray upon the poor, and Jesus is indicting them. You're not to pray upon the poor, you're to love the poor, you're to serve the poor, you're to give to the poor. And so when they see 60 grand dropped in one minute on his head and on his feet, they're saying, what are you doing? Ministry. Love your neighbor as yourself. Give to the poor. Their anger seemed righteous, didn't it? Verse 5 gives them the reason. Give to the poor, care for the poor, love your neighbors. That's the second greatest commandment. Paul says all the law is summarized in loving your neighbor. And so they begin to criticize her, not not a side comment, but harshly and repeatedly. 
They start attacking her verbally out of what they think is righteous anger. Comment after comment directed at her. It had to have gotten awkward. And in one sense, they're almost indicting Jesus because who's not criticizing her? Jesus isn't, right? He's receiving it. He's letting this thing go on. They almost feel like they have to step in for Jesus. They just could not let it go. 60 grand? Wasted? You just waste 60 grand like that? Now, I have to admit, I think, if I was there, I think I'd be angry as well. I mean, let's just be honest. If, if I saw, you know, 60 grand just wasted like that in one minute, when you could have, I, I could think of a lot of good things you could do with 60 grand to bless people who are in genuine need. Can't you? And so I, I, I would, I, I think I would not just disagree. I think I would be passionately criticizing and complaining myself. I really do. And so here they are repeatedly doing this. And yet Jesus comes to the rescue. With authority and, and quickness, he says, why are you troubling her? Again, that idea of troubling is not like, why would you make a side comment? It's why do you keep on nagging her? Why do you keep causing her trouble with your, with your constant scolding and bugging of her? It's almost like she was being bullied right in front of them. And so Jesus steps in before the bullies. And I, I thought, you know, why did Jesus take so long to intervene? Couldn't he have stopped it earlier? I mean, it's not just one criticism. It's a few. And as I was reading, I just thought, Lord, why didn't you step in earlier? Whenever, if you see someone being bullied, wouldn't you step in? If they're being picked on. And, and wouldn't you do it right away? Would you wait for a few minutes and just see how awkward it gets? And how bad the person feels? And then you come and help them out? Why are you waiting, Lord? Four, five, six comments smashing her, her heart and discouraging her. And Jesus is just sitting there listening to it. And then he says, then he says, stop it. Why are you guys doing this? Now, I don't know why he waited, but I have a few guesses. So let me just share a few guesses I thought of. Um, if you have a better answer, actually share with me, because I'd love to know what you think about why Jesus waited. Here's a few I think. He didn't know what to say right away. That sounds a little peculiar. Maybe he was still feeling out the situation and listening and praying. Secondly, I think maybe he was waiting to build his case of rebuking them instead of jumping the gun and losing the opportunity. Have you ever done that before? Someone's about to do something wrong and you butt in just before they actually fully do it and then they actually stop doing it and now you can't confront them fully because you stopped it before it happened? I think maybe Jesus is just waiting for them to get it all out. All right, get it all out. Get it out. Get out your criticism. Okay, now let me tell you why that's wrong. Maybe that's why. I think another one is, I mean, what about her? How does she feel, though? I think part of it is, doesn't Jesus care about her? I think in, in letting her feel the opposition and harsh criticism, he was testing her resolve and her action and her choice. Are you really devoted to me, even in, in the face of opposition and persecution? I mean, God doesn't take away persecution from, from Christians, does he? Not all the time. He doesn't take away criticism from your life. Why not? I think he's testing you. He's testing you. Are you going to endure? Are you going to keep trusting him? Or are you going to cave in? And then what, what I think also in letting her feel the opposition and harsh criticism, he was building up the sweetness of her vindication as he's about to affirm her action. When you feel that down in the dump because they're criticizing you and then Jesus lifts her up and says, she has done the noble thing. You guys are off and she's right. And her legacy will be remembered forever for this action. Man, that had to feel sweet, Right? 
after getting criticized like that for a few minutes, maybe, and Jesus just silently sitting there like, what are you doing? Like, butt in. Well, it had to. And so I want you to see here, I think Jesus is being wise and good in his timing, and he's not overreacting. Or to use James' words, he's slow to speak, quick to what? Quick to hear. So everyone be slow to speak, quick to hear, and, or slow to, so, slow to speak, slow to anger, and quick to what? Hear or listen. Jesus is listening right now. He's listening to God. He's listening to the situation. He's not speaking up right away and overreacting. He's not quick to anger. Are they quick to anger? Yes. Are they quick to speak? And they're not listening. If, if, now, what I should have done, I, I admit, I would be one of the angry people there. What I should do is I should wonder, why is Jesus not getting angry? I mean, Jesus loves the poor more than me. If he's not getting angry, maybe my anger is off base. Right? Maybe I'm not angry over the right thing. If Jesus is not criticizing her, why would I criticize her? I mean, I don't, I don't understand why she just dropped 60K on his head like that. I don't get it. But if Jesus is okay with it, I need to at least pause and be slow to speak, slow to anger, and just quick to listen. And maybe I even ask the Lord, Lord, can you explain why that's okay in the light of the fact that we have a long list of people who we know have needs that this, that this money could help? At least be in the posture of listening and humility, right? Versus quick overreacting and, and, and correcting rudely. And now maybe they were trying to, maybe they thought Jesus was hesitating because he was acting like their bodyguards. Or they were acting like his bodyguards. You know, like a celebrity who might be going out in public and a lot of people want their autograph. And yet the celebrities don't want to come off as mean, spirited, or jerks. So they have bodyguards who are the rude ones. Oh, you can't talk to him right now. He's busy. Now the, the celebrity would like to say that themselves, but they don't want to alienate their fans. So you hire some. So maybe Jesus is the one who doesn't want to say, stop it. And maybe he's waiting for his bodyguards to step in so he doesn't look like the mean one. Maybe that's what they thought. Because I was thinking, if I was there, I'm thinking, why is he not saying anything? Maybe he wants me to say something. Maybe he's testing me and to see if I'll have the boldness to correct somebody. I don't know. I'm just trying to get into the minds of these disciples and see what's going on in the story. But the, the, the point here is that the second aspect is that um, she's perceptive. She perceives something that they don't see. And that's why Jesus is actually on her side and not on their side. Now, what did she perceive? Look at verse 6. What did she perceive? The noble thing of verse 7. Here's what she perceived in verse 7. You always have the poor with you, and you can do what is good for them whenever you want, but you don't always have who? Me, right? And so why did she do the right thing? Because he's leaving and the poor are not leaving. They'll always be here, but I won't be here. And so she chose the right thing because I'm going to be gone. Now, why is he going to be gone? Where's he going? To the cross and the resurrection that he's going to ascend, right? They don't know that completely, but he knows that. And so he says, you know what? Yes, feed the poor. Yes, bless the poor. But this is a unique situation. I'm about to die in less than a week. So I'm here in a temporary situation. She chose the right thing. You didn't. And I've told you three times I'm going to die. I told you three times, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to get arrested, I'm going to be persecuted, I'm going to get beaten, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise. And you guys just don't get it through your heads. You don't see that I'm not here for a long time. She chose the right thing because she perceives that there's a priority to me, even over against these other needs, genuine needs of, of the poor. So they ignored Jesus' warnings, they ignored Jesus' predictions, his prophecies, and they ignored Jesus' words. They didn't perceive the moment. But she seems to have perceived the moment. 
she sees that Jesus is getting the honor he's due. Now, Kevin DeYoung has an illustration of this point, and so I want to use it here. It's just so good. What if the church gave me a Rolex President Day date to 218206 Platinum Blue Roman Dial, 41 millimeter watch? You know how much that retails for? $62,500. I saw it online for $50,000, so you get a deal. $12,500 off on that. Now, what if on Pastor's Appreciation Month, you know there is a Pastor's Appreciation Month, right? It's not this month, by the way. What if the church decided to give me that watch, $62,500 watch for Pastor's Appreciation Month? And they came up here, they're clapping, and some of you would be shocked and think, what on earth are we doing here? Giving our pastor a watch like this? And what if I was there, and I sensed that it was a little bit awkward, and there's tension in the room. And I said, I know some of you are uncomfortable with it, but hey, everyone, relax. I'm worth it. (laughs) Wouldn't that be audacious? (laughs) But is that the case with Jesus? Because that's what he's doing, right? He's saying, I'm worth it. You guys are wrong. She did the right thing because it's me. Wow. So, of course, with Jesus, we get this. The disciples didn't get it, but we get it because Jesus is not just man. He's also fully what? He's God. And he's the Lord and he's Savior. Of course, he's worth it. Of course, I'm not worth that. But of course, he is. Right? And so she intuits, in some ways, his divine identity. I'm not sure if you could take a mic and just go to Mary and say, hey, do you think he's God? I don't know if she'd say, yeah, he's fully God, fully man, one person, two natures, you know, and give the full creed. I don't know if she'd do that, but she intuits that he's worth more. And that's why when we read this story, we're not shocked by dropping 62 grand on Jesus, right? When you drop 62 grand on the man who is also fully God, and you know that he's Lord of all and he's the treasure of the universe— and that he's the first and best of beings, and he's the most valuable person in the universe and outside the universe because he's God, 62 grand is almost nothing, right? And she saw that. She saw he was worth it. She perceived what they did not perceive. Question for our church family. Do we discern as a church the proper priority and give our best for the highest? They, they love the poor. Should we love the poor? Yes. Should we love each other? Yes. Should we love God? Yes. And those are not all the same priority. Those are not the same priority. Should we love our family? Yes. Here's the question for us as a church family. Do we, as a church, discern our highest proper priority as a church family? Are we focused on and fighting for the honor and glory of Jesus in our own hearts, in the hearts of fellow members, and in the hearts of the lost in Southeast Los Angeles County? Is that what we're after? Our highest priority as a church is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ as defined by the Bible. That's our highest priority. Does that drive our agenda here at this church? Does this drive our meetings? Does this drive our conversations, our prayer time, our desires for what needs to be sustained in this church and things that need to not be changed, our desire and things that do need to be changed as the church moves forward? Is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ our highest priority? That's the question. And for her, Jesus was the highest priority. For them, the poor was a higher priority. And they got it wrong, and she got it right. But it's not just about Jesus, though it is that. Look at verse 8. It goes deeper. She has done what she could. All she has is 62 grand. She has anointed my body in advance for what? For burial. 
So she did what she could. We need to do what we can. But even more, Jesus is talking about his what? His burial, which means he's going to what? Die. Jesus is still hung up on this death thing, right? The disciples are like, stop talking about that. Let's talk about the kingdom again and how you're going to rule the world. And he keeps talking about this death and burial thing. And, and he won't let it go. You know, she did the right thing. You know why? Because I'm going to be buried. Oh, here he goes. Burial talk again. Whatever. Remember that kingdom prophecy about the new heavens and the new earth? When is that? And we're going to rule. And didn't you say something about the 12 of us ruling on the 12 thrones? Can you, can you go back to that part of your teaching again? And so that's what they want. But here's the point, And here's the glory of Jesus, actually. Here's why partly Jesus is fully God, so he's worth it. But here's another reason why Jesus is worth it. Jesus is intent on going to the cross. He will not be distracted from obeying the Father and dying for our sins and rising from the dead. He is resolved. He's dead set on redeeming us from our bondage to slavery to our oppressive master. In Matthew 26, 2, Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to be arrested and crucified in a few days. So that's actually a fourth prediction. He told them explicitly, don't we have a great Savior who, who doesn't hesitate to uphold the righteousness of God and save guilty, wicked sinners like us because of his love for God and his love for us? What a Savior. No one loves you like that. Amen. No one loves you like Jesus loves you. There's no one who comes close. And so we see the fourth aspect of this expensive gift is that it was tied to the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, Christ dying for our sins. And then fifth, verse 9. Look at verse 9 here. Her legacy. I assure you, the fifth thing about this expensive thing is legacy. I assure you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told in memory of her. She's preparing Jesus for burial. She's honoring Jesus as the priority. She's doing it with great sacrifice and expensive, um, extravagant lavishing of gifts. She is devoted to Jesus and she gets it right. And her legacy is the legacy of someone who is sold out for Jesus, right? Her legacy is this, sacrificial and extravagant devotion to Jesus. That's her legacy. And that's what we are. That's why we, if she was sitting in a room right now, she, first of all, she would not understand English, right? Then she would wonder, why are there a bunch of people from different ethnicities here? And then she would wonder, why are they talking about this Jewish Messiah that I dropped 62 grand on? And she wouldn't understand any of our words. She wouldn't understand what's going on here. And yet, we in Bellflower, California, 2,000 years removed, are talking about her. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed, they're going to read the gospel according to Mark and the gospel according to Matthew, and they will talk about her because she did the extravagant, sacrificial act of being devoted to Jesus with her life. Brothers and sisters, you cannot love Jesus too much. Amen. You can't. You can't love Jesus too much. It's impossible. You can't love Jesus too much where you're going to extreme. There is no extreme when you're talking about someone who's altogether infinitely lovely. We're the whole realm of nature mine. That were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. If you died right now, what would your legacy be? Would it be that you love Jesus too much in that sense? You love Jesus real hard with all you've got? That you had an expensive, extravagant, sacrificial devotion to Jesus? Would that be how people remember you? There is no sacrifice too great. David Livingston was a missionary to Africa. 
And he, he embodied this idea of when Jesus said, if you leave houses and lands and father and mother, you'll receive a hundredfold in this life with persecution and in the end eternal life. So David Livingston wrote, he said this to a bunch of Cambridge students about his leaving the benefits of living in England for the missionary field of Africa. This is what he said. For my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. Remember, moving your whole family there is not an easy thing. People, people talk of sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is, it that, is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity? The consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with a, with, with a word in such a view, and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say, rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger, now and then, with the foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life, may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. I never made a sacrifice. How can you outgive God? Give up my comforts in America? Sacrificially live and pour out my life for Him? That's not a sacrifice. It's a privilege. What a deal. I give that and I get Him? In the new heavens and new earth and reign with Him forever? It's a no-brainer. It's no sacrifice. Christian, what is yours? What is yours that's too expensive for you to give to Jesus? Name your price. Where's the line that you will not cross to follow Jesus? Does following Jesus seem like a great sacrifice to you and a burden? Or does it feel more like a privilege and a no-brainer? True worship towards Christ is never a waste. They thought she was wasting her time and her money. Some people say, I mean, think about my, if you think about your life, some of you come here Sunday morning, Sunday night. You spend a seventh of your week here at church with the church family. Some people look at that and say, man, what a waste of your life. You know what you could have done with that time? I mean, one week maybe, but when you do that year after year, decade after decade, you read the Bible with people and you pray and you sing, what a waste of time, they might think. But true worship is never a waste. It's never a waste. It actually, it actually invests and raises the value of all the rest of your life. Amen. If you're not a Christian, here's a question for you. What is your most prized possession? What is your most prized possession? And is it worth it? Is it worth more than Jesus? Is it worth more than your eternity? Is it worth more than standing on judgment day before God and not having the righteousness of Christ? So, number one, that was my longer point. That was the main point here, is when Jesus polarizes you, you will either do the expensive noble thing, and if you're a Christian, I hope you have and are doing that, or, secondly, you'll do what? You'll betray the king and his kingdom. You'll either do one of the two. Now, why did Jesus betray betray Jesus? Look at verses 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to hand him over to them. And when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him silver. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Why did Judas choose to betray Jesus? I have a few thoughts here. One is the disillusionment about the kingdom. We're supposed to reign and rule. I'm following Jesus. I'm giving up my time. I'm certainly sacrificing And I do want Jesus to succeed because when Jesus succeeds and brings that political, militarily powerful kingdom to rule on earth over all the nations, we will ride his coattail. 
to power, money, respect, and personal glory. So I want Jesus to succeed because when Jesus succeeds, who succeeds? Judas might be thinking, I succeed. And I want to rule with Jesus. And if he's the Messiah, I want to be with the Messiah. So he was sold out. I'll give up everything for that. But then Jesus starts talking about the cross that has to come first. He tells them not only that he's going to die on the cross, he says, actually, if you really want to follow me, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and die too and follow me. You guys want the crown? The cross must come first. And Judas was not having that. Judas was like the soil called the rocky ground in Mark chapter 4, where he hears the word and then the trials and persecutions and tribulations, the sun beats down on the plant and chokes up the seed of the word of God. So professing faith in Christ, but when there's trial, they can't handle the heat because Jesus is not worth it. So they give up Jesus to get out of the heat. That's Judas. Christian, you need to ask yourself this because you're saying you follow Jesus just like Judas did. Are you deceiving yourself into thinking that you really follow Jesus when you're actually after your own kingdom? You're just using Jesus for your kingdom? For your prominence? I follow Jesus because it'll make my family better. I follow Jesus because he'll give me respect and good friends. Is that why you follow Jesus? That's why Judas did. And when he didn't get what he wanted, Jesus was not the goal. He was the butler, the chauffeur to get him to the goal. Church family, we need to ask ourselves this as a church. Are we more about our church than we are about Jesus? Are we more about our church than our church faithfully representing and extending the kingdom that is bigger than our own local church? Bigger than, dare I say it, our own denomination? Are we discouraged when we see our church slowly growing or not growing by some of some people's perception? Are we discouraged and we think that we need different methods and policies or leaders or something to change? We're discouraged perhaps by the lack of conversions. I know I am. And the seeming unsuccessful and meager results of our gospel ministry. Do we say it? Lord, we're supposed to have more, and if we don't have more, then I'm not. I'm off this train. I'm off this bandwagon. Because like Judas, I want to see the kingdom now. I want to see the church grow now. Do we get discouraged by that to the point where we're willing to actually not follow Jesus anymore and betray him? Judas, the deeper reason why Judas betrayed Jesus is because he had idolatry and self-centered glory. He wanted to use Jesus for his own glory. He didn't want to find his joy in the glory of Jesus. And so you know what that led to in John chapter 12? It says that he was stealing from the money bag. He was the treasurer. He was the money holder for the group. And so it says in John 12 that explicitly that he was the, one of the main ones scolding the woman. What are you doing? 60 grand? We could give it to the poor. Who, has, who holds the money? Judas does. What does he do every so often when he feels the urge? Dips his hand into the money bag and spends it on himself. Puts some investments for himself. Embezzles. So here he is saying, I love the poor, but really he loves who? Himself. I want to glorify God in loving the poor. No, he wanted to glorify himself by stealing from the money bag. And so not only is he idolatrous, he's a dishonest hypocrite. He's trying to make it seem like he has a righteous motive for his complaint. But is his motive righteous? No. And this led him to foolish blindness where he could not even see the wisdom of Jesus in accepting this gift. And here's the worst part. It actually leads to satanic bondage. In Luke 22, which also tells the story, 
Oh, not that it doesn't tell the story. It says what happens right before Jesus or Judas decides to, to go to the chief priest. It says that Satan entered Judas in Luke 22, verse 3. Is this where it happened? Is this the straw that broke the camel's back? Judas already taking money from the, from the fund because Jesus is talking about this death thing and he doesn't like that, but he's still sticking around because this thing might work out after all. I mean, there was a triumphal entry, right? But here, actually, before the triumphal entry, the day before, Judas is getting angry at this woman. And then after Jesus decides to vindicate her and scold them, Judas is like, that's it, man, I'm done. Burial? You're still talking about your burial? I'm done. And so Judas snaps, I think, and Satan enters. You know Ephesians 4, 26 and 27? Turn there. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 it says this. Be angry and do not what? Sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Is it okay? Is, this actually is a command to be angry. It's okay to be angry. It's actually right to be angry when you're angry for a righteous reason. But when you're angry for an unrighteous reason, you're being angry and you're sinning. And it says, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. We know that, but listen to verse 27. And don't give a who? Don't give who an opportunity? The devil, devil, Satan, right? That's strange. Unrighteous anger is tied to what? An opportunity for who? Satan. Satan preys upon the passion of people who are angry for unrighteous reasons. And Judas was angry here. Indignant that he would drop, that that 60,000 would just be dropped like that. But his anger was unrighteous. And when you're, Angry for an unrighteous reason, you're a sitting duck for Satan. And you give an opportunity to the devil. And then just read on in Ephesians 4. Here are some things that come out of it. Because look at verse, 4, verse 28. It's also describing Judas. The thief must, not, must no longer steal. Instead, he must do honest work with his own hand so that he has something to share with anyone in need. Wasn't Judas a thief? Yeah, see? like Again, your opportunity to devil, you become a thief. Not only that, verse 29. No foul or unwholesome language should ever come out of your mouth, but only what is good for building someone up in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve God's spirit. You were sealed for him in the day of redemption. All bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander must be removed from you along with all malice and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as God in Christ forgave you. Was Judas kind and compassionate towards Mary during this anointing? Was, wasn't he bitter and angry and malicious and slanderous and stealing. I mean, Ephesians 4 is a picture of Judas. It's a picture of us when we don't repent. And we need to be careful of this. This is the moment that Satan takes advantage of the opportunity. And I will remind you, Paul is writing Ephesians 4 to Christians Not to non-Christians. Don't sit there and say, well, I'm a Christian, so Satan can't attack me. Wrong. He's a roaring lion roaming around seeking to devour someone. 2 Timothy 2, 24, 26 says that there are people in among the covenant community who are captured by Satan to do his will. It's possible that you and I can be captured by Satan to do his will, even as Christians, without knowing it. So we need to be careful here not to be idolatrous and seek our own glory. Be careful that you're not using Jesus for your own ends. And then it leads to the most audacious act of all, going back to Mark chapter 14. 
he decides to, to go to the chief priest and he says, I will betray him. This is the audacious activity of Judas. When Satan enters, unrighteous anger dominates your life. He's stealing. His words are unwholesome. He's not kind and compassionate, doesn't know the love of Christ. He's dominated by Satan. He decides he's going to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which is about four months' wages, maybe 18 grand. That's not chump change. 18 grand is something that's helpful, right? Anyone here be help, would be helped by 18 grand, right? I mean, 18 grand is not a little, a little thing. So he, he betrays Jesus for 18 grand. And here's what we need to know, that when you choose to betray Jesus, you always get ripped off. When you betray Jesus, you always get ripped off. We sell Jesus out for a 30-minute episode of sexual immorality, whether it be pornography or indulging with another person in person. We sell Jesus out for a friend or family member's approval so that they would think we're, we're an okay person. We sell Jesus out for a promotion in our careers. We sell Jesus out for one fun Friday night. And it's never worth it in the end, is it? Not if you have your eyes on truth and reality. If you're not a Christian, you might say, well, I don't want to give everything to Jesus. I want to go to heaven. I don't want to go to hell. That's a good thing, by the way, to not go to hell, but that's what everyone wants. But you're saying, I don't want to give everything to Jesus. Sacrifice? That's expensive. I just want Jesus on Sundays. Can I just have Jesus on Sundays and give Jesus maybe $20 a week in the offering plate and then the rest of my life I could kind of go on my own way? No, you can't. The short answer is you either give yourself to Jesus or you don't. Now you might say, well, that's why I don't want to be a Christian because Jesus de demands too much and I don't want to be a slave of anyone, even Jesus. I get that, but guess what? If you're not a slave of Jesus, you're a slave of someone or something else. You could be a slave of those other things I mentioned a family member, or a career. Everyone is a slave of something. Everyone has a master. And so if you're not a Christian, I need you to understand this as we close. You're guilty. All, actually, all of us as sinners, we're all guilty of treason before God. We are traitors. We betray Jesus and sell him out for other things. And everyone is either following Jesus or following Satan. We can be free from his oppression and his lies. We could have life and joy and forgiveness. And we could even have God himself. But we need to know the gospel. So if you're not a Christian, I close with this gospel. What is the main message of Christianity? The main message of Christianity is this. God made you. He made all of us. He made us to have a relationship with him. And to reflect him in this world with joy and gladness. Yet we have rebelled against God and said, we don't want you to be the king that we reflect. We want to be the king that other people reflect. And so we betray God, we betray Jesus, we indulge in our own self-centered glory. And because of that, the penalty for that is what? Death, eternal death in hell. God's judgment for our sins. The wages of sin is death. But here's the good news. It says, but the gift of God, Romans 6.23, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So here's the good news. That Jesus comes into the world and he becomes the one who does the expensive noble thing not 60 grand he gives his life not just as a man but the god man who had perfect communion with the father gives up more than 60 grand he gives up on the cross even in a sense his own reconciled or peaceful relationship with the father and he takes the wrath of god on himself 
for our sins so that we could be saved, all for God's glory. Jesus, the Son, loved the Father like no one else. He's the true Mary. He's the true sacrificial, noble worshiper in that sense. He's also God, but he's also man, and he really honored and submitted to the Father for us.